Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. It is the final episode of August. Where has summer gone? Welcome into Legal Face Off. Rich Linkoff, Tina Martini, the Legal Eagles are here. I can't believe it's almost September. I know. I just, it's been I a strange year. <laughs> my bubble is all the same, Sam. It could be winter. It could be apocalypse. I'm in my bubble. Yeah, my name is Sam Paniotovich, Ben Anderson, Emily Flores, Gabrielle Hadley, per usual, doing their work behind the scenes here. We're going to talk about several topics per usual, mail-in voting, locked-up boxes, Trump against TikTok, and they're back at school at Northern Illinois University College of Law. To kick things off, return guests on the program, former federal prosecutor, CNN legal analyst, and the biggest Cub fan on the panel. Welcome back, Ellie Honig. How are you? Thank- Thanks for being here. Wait, we have to get the record straight. I am a Phillies fan. I, I am a, a uh, you know, a one step removed Cubs fan. I was rooting for them when they won it all. And God bless. Go Cubs. Go away. I, I can't pick a side in this north side, south side Chicago stuff. I'm not involved. I'm neutral. Well, we are no fans of any Philly team on this show, but we, we, we're thrilled to have this, <laughs> as always, Ellie. So Fair enough. mail-in voting, uh, the mess. I mean, where do we start? I mean, the most recent news is the Postmaster General yesterday. And by the way, not surprising. Trump does this all the time. He'll float a trial balloon and then see what happens in reverse course. And it turns out that despite Trump saying that he's going to defund the post office, basically, yesterday the Postmaster General said, oh, forget it. We're going to uh, not defund the post office. We're going to continue to fund them through the election, so there's no problem. But the big but here is... What's your opinion on, A, whether the Trump administration could be trusted, because many don't believe he can, uh, including the, what, 16 or, or so attorney, attorneys general who have filed or will file suit against the Trump administration. So right. number one, do we trust that this will happen? And as significantly to these attorneys general, including the Pennsylvania one who's sort of leading the charge, um, hasn't much of the damage already been done by some of the rollbacks that the Postmaster General has put into place. Yeah, so those, I think, are the two big questions here. Number one, how much damage has already been done? Number two, do we just take it as a matter of faith that the the Postmaster General uh, will make these changes or stop making these changes? By the way, just big picture, how bizarre is it that we have this sort of existential threat to our democracy, to the core right to vote, and it turns on the Postmaster General, but that's where we are. I mean, this is sort of fundamental stuff. Um, look, no, I think there's some real accountability that needs to be followed up on. I'm not willing, just as a citizen, forget about uh, you know any political views anyone might have, just as a citizen, I'm not willing to take it as a matter of faith that now that the Postal Service, uh, uh, that the joy that the, the Postmaster General has said, I'll stop, I'll fix everything. I don't believe that's necessarily good enough. I want to see what that is. And I think Congress has a role to play here. I think state AGs have a role to play here. And importantly, I think individual states have, have maybe the most important role to play here in ways that I can lay out for you. Yeah, so Ellie, let's start with Congress. Yeah. What can Congress do here? You're right, voting is a fundamental right. What does Congress do in this situation? So three things I can think of Congress doing. Constitutionally speaking here, if you were to go back and ask the framers, I think they would say the remedy for an abuse of power, let's assume the worst here. Let's assume this is what Donald Trump told us it was the other day, a conscious effort to cut off funding or limit funding to the Postal Service because he doesn't want mail-in balloting. The constitutional remedy there is impeachment. I mean, that's what it's there for, an abuse of power. Now, is there going to be a second impeachment of Donald Trump? No way. Certainly not before the election. I mean, we're, you know, the calendar matters here. So let's just sort of put that as 
top option number one Congress has. Option number two, they seem to be pursuing now, which is let's hold hearings. Now, hearings in themselves, the value is let's get answers. Let's lock in DeJoy. Let's ask him specific questions. What have you done? What's been changed over the last six months? Do you have statistics? How many mail sorting machines have been added, subtracted, that kind of thing? But, you know, the, the cliche is sunlight's the great disinfectant. And, and I do believe in that. And I think these hearings are important. And I think it's important that DeJoy actually shows he said he will and that Congress follows uh, follows through with that. The third thing, Congress, Congress really has no pun intended, but a Trump card, a constitutional Trump card here. But it depends on some measure of bipartisanship. So if Congress controls the purse for the federal government, Congress controls taxing and spending. And if Congress wanted to and had enough political will they could pass a bill saying we hereby allocate X trillion, not trillion, X billion dollars, which is what the post office needs. But you'd need the House and the Senate, of course. So you would need at least some Senate Republicans to join with Democrats. Now, Trump might veto that. He constitutionally has the power, no question, to veto it. Congress actually has a counter counterplay here, which is you can override a presidential veto, but you need two thirds of both houses. So you would need some serious bipartisan coalitions there, which I don't see any evidence of that happening. So what can, you mentioned the states, Ellie, what can the states do? Yeah. So one thing that I think is really important to understand, I think a lot of people out there have this concept that we have, we must have some unified nationwide election system. No, don't think of it that way. Think of it as we have 51 separate election systems, one for each state plus DC. The, the, the constitution and our laws put the primary power for how we vote. Do we use mail-ins? What are the deadlines? How do we poll? All that stuff is in the hands of the states. And so if the states want, they have a couple of counter moves here. The most obvious one, I think, is if there's a concern that ballots are going to take an extraordinary long time to arrive, states have the ability to extend the deadlines by which they will count those ballots. So election day is November 3rd. States, we have, There's lawsuits happening all over the country right now where states are trying to extend that, saying we will count any ballot that arrives three days, five days. Some One of the lawsuits seeks 14 days. Um, but states can expand their deadlines. Now, there comes a point of no return. You don't want to allow, I don't think, ballots that come in 45 days or 30 days later. But I do think it's a good idea for states to build in some extra cushion there so that if ballots are slow trickling in, they still get counted. But we're also seeing lawsuits trying to stop that. Some, some states were seeing lawsuits to expand those deadlines coming from primarily Democratic political interests. And in other states, we're seeing uh, lawsuits to restrict those, to, to limit those deadlines coming from primarily Republican campaigns and committees. Ellie, play that out. We're uh, on the uh, night of election day, uh, or let's say a week later, even. Yeah. Uh, Trump loses the Electoral College. He files a lawsuit. Eventually, it gets in the hands of the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court would take the case. I think everyone agrees it's of uh, significant importance enough. What do they do? So there's a, a million different variations here. Let me, let me say, first of all, there's not going to be one big Bush versus Gore-like case that happens before November 3rd that settles all these questions. These questions are going to be litigated and settled state to state. And you may have very different outcomes state to state. Depends on who the governor is, depend on what your courts will do. So we're going to go into November 3rd with really this mosaic of different systems. Um, I also think it's quite likely we don't know who wins on November 3rd or 4th or 5th because those absent, we're going to have some close races 
in some swing states and those absentee ballots are going to take, I believe, days to come in and be counted. And so I think everybody needs to understand that. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I know we all grew up, aside from 2000, knowing sometime late night who won. I think we need to, I hope that everyone's able to take a deep breath and allow a few days so that the absentee votes can be counted and so we can get a better picture of what won. Now, could we have, look, could we have Bush versus Gore part two 20 years later? Yes, we could have even, I'm making a heaven help us face here, but we could have multiple. We could have, remember, Bush versus Gore was a dispute over the recounting process in one state in Florida. There's no reason we couldn't, well, we could see that in multiple states. Now, would the Supreme Court take a case like this? I think so. It's hard to think of a higher stakes type case, but what if they have four different cases coming from four different courts. And remember, Bush versus Gore really was a sort of nuanced, well, theoretically, I think we all understand that the court broke very clearly along ideological lines. But really what that decision was, was interpreting sort of whether Florida had the right under its own rules to continue counting ballots. I mean, the primary battles that led up to Bush versus Gore were fought out in county courts in Florida, and they all culminated. So yeah, we could see a replay of that. We could see multiples. If the Supreme Court gets it, um, are they going to break along straight ideological lines? I don't know. I think we got some interesting indicators in the term that just finished that Chief Justice Roberts is going to be a wild card here. I mean, the way the Supreme Court breaks down is you have four solid established liberal justices, Sotomayor, Kagan, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, and Breyer, right? All, all four appointed by Democratic presidents, all four reliably on the liberal side. The traditional view is on the other side, you have four sort of entrenched conservatives. You have Thomas, uh, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Alito, all appointed by Republicans. Although Gorsuch and Kavanaugh did flip over and join with the, with the, the liberal group on a couple of big opinions. Roberts was seen as the swing. And boy, I mean, did he ever swing? I mean, look, he's a conservative. He was put on the bench by, by a Republican president. He has a long line of uh, conservative credentials, but he showed he is not afraid to join the liberals. He, he feels no political allegiance, I don't believe, to Donald Trump or any other president. And I think if it comes down to a situation like that, you, it's a coin flip. I think that could really go either way. I don't, I don't, a lot of people seem to be saying it's just going to come out 5-4 in favor of whoever the Republican candidate is. I don't, I don't believe that. That's the great Ellie Honig, CNN legal analyst. We will be watching. We appreciate you always making time. And hey, if you need like 10 minutes to fill on election night, Rich and Tina, I hear, are available. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I love coming on. I love the city of Chicago. It's my pleasure. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas, starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. 
In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. You can like Legal Faceoff on Twitter. You can follow us on Facebook. Actually, I think I reversed that, but you know what to do. It's Legal Faceoff. And after you listen, after you rate and review, go back and rate and review again and give us those five stars that we so desire. Joining us now in Lincoln, Nebraska, Kyle Langvart, Assistant Professor of Law at Nebraska College of Law and also at the Governance and Technology Center. He's going to talk about Trump taking on TikTok. Welcome, yeah. Professor. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here. Professor, on August 5th, um, President Trump issued two executive orders that are seeking to cripple two very popular Chinese apps, TikTok and WeChat. Under the terms of those orders, Americans have 45 days um, to stop carrying out transactions with the parent companies of those apps. The president cited national security concerns as the basis for these executive orders. Can you tell us more about what those national security concerns really are? Yeah, I mean, so uh, some of that would relate to to privacy. So if we're talking about, I think, WeChat in particular, this is a kind of Facebook-like app plus payments. So it's like this super Facebook. The actual user base in the United States is pretty small. This would mainly be people who want to communicate with friends or family in China. But, you know, conceivably that that's an, an app where somebody could have compromising personal information that could be used for blackmail purposes or something like that. You know, it, it's even possible that, um, you know, conceivably some bad actor could use like location information to, to figure out where national security installations are or something. You know, those are the kinds of scenarios they'd be thinking about. TikTok, I think it's a lot less clear because, um, you know, my, my understanding of the app is that it, it doesn't collect a, a ton of personally identifying information. Now, th- there are some other national security concerns, too, that haven't been talked about quite so much. Uh, one would be election interference, which, I mean, honestly, I think is a, a pretty reasonable concern, e- even if we don't have evidence that it's, that it's ongoing. You know, imagine, imagine if Russia had actually owned uh, a, a social platform on the scale of TikTok back in 2016. Um, and, and then the, uh, I, I suppose the other concern would be censorship by the Chinese government. And there's actually a record of that on, on TikTok. Now, TikTok's a, a private company, but uh, they're, they're subject to the influence of, of the state. And so for that reason, um, conversations about Tiananmen Square or Tibet, Falun Gong, that kind of stuff uh, has been cens- censored in the past, and that's pretty well documented. Professor, my, my question is one that my 14-year-old daughter, who's obsessed with TikTok, as every 14-year-old is, <laughs> and her friends have peppered me with since this came out. What possible legal authority does the president have in regulating, banging, purchasing uh, mm-hmm. TikTok? Well, so there's this law called IEPA. So this is the uh, International Emergency Economic Powers Act. And so what, what this law lets the president do is just ban uh, all kinds of transactions. It's really pretty wide-reaching authority between um, American 
people or, or companies and either foreign states or people or companies who are subject to the jurisdiction of foreign states. Now, there's kind of a hole in IEPA, it's called the Berman Amendments, that limits the president's ability to regulate the exchange of information. So they, they didn't want IEPA being used to shut out propaganda from a foreign state or that kind of thing. And so it's possible that the president's authority to ban transactions under IEPA actually doesn't reach uh, something like social media. You know, it's almost kind of like a, a, a First Amendment-like statutory protection. So the impact of this of, of these executive orders is is, is potentially far-reaching. Taking TikTok as an example, last week the president ordered the owner of TikTok to sell its U.S. business within 90 days. Um, there have been a number of companies that have been in the mix. Uh, you've got Microsoft and Twitter that have expressed interest in purchasing at least some of those assets, including in North America. Um, Oracle most recently has emerged as a potential buyer. Um, we all know that Oracle's chairman is a Trump supporter, and Trump, you know, re very recently within the past day, just gave the nod to this potential buyout. What do you see happening with issues like TikTok's potential acquisition, as well as things like U.S.-China relations with what is going on here? Mm -hmm. Well, it does seem like there's almost kind of a, a mercantilist aspect uh, to this. And, you know, the, the fact that President Trump himself is involved uh, doesn't exactly, you know, commend this, this whole thing. Uh, for all for all we know, Trump Trump could have hurt feelings about the whole Tulsa thing or, or something like that. There could be any number of bad reasons that that inform this. Um, you know, I, I think that that TikTok's parent company ByteDance uh, is is going to be fine. That I think they'll wind up selling off TikTok and then they'll focus more of their business on the Chinese market. Um, Tencent, which is WeChat's parent company, I think is going to be a little worse off. And the reason for that is because there's not, uh, I think, much of an American market for the WeChat app. That actually might just disappear, unlike TikTok. And, and by the way, that's a really bad outcome. I, I mean, I, I feel bad for people in the U.S. who are using it as their line of communication with, with people in China. I think the other fallout for uh, WeChat's parent company is now they're going to face increased competition on the Chinese side from ByteDance. That's Professor Kyle Langvart, Professor of Law at Nebraska College of Law. Thank you, sir, for your time. Absolutely. We all know the legal world is complex and high-pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Our final guest before the legal grab bag here on Legal Faceoff is the Dean and Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law, Cassandra Hill. Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show today. 
Dean, it's such an honor to have you on. I, of course, am on the very proud to serve on the Board of Visitors for the College of Law and have for many years. And I'm just thrilled on behalf of all the Board of Visitors and alumni and students. I know thrilled to have you aboard. We're all really excited about what, what you're going to do for our school. And I know you're in the middle of it now, so we're really lucky to have you take a few minutes out of your time during the beginning of school. So just talk to our listeners a little bit about your journey to this point um, and, and how your career went leading you up to uh, leading NIU College of Law. So, you know, this is like the perfect time to take on this new challenge. And I'm privileged to serve at a law school that has a mission that's rooted in access and diversity and a focus on excellence in teaching. So you asked about my journey. Um, I attended Howard University School of Law you know, a law school with a history of excellence in education, creation of progressive leaders like Thurgood Marshall. And for the past several years, I had taught at a law school with a parallel mission and teaching focus. My research has always been on pedagogy and assessments, always with the goal of improving what we do in the classroom. So I share this with you to show you that my commitment to access diversity in teaching is not just merely words. It's actually been a part of my, my career pursuits, my educational background, and my scholarship. And for the position as dean in particular, I have not only law practice experience that I bring to the table, but also a host of administrative roles. I've served as director of legal writing, the associate dean for faculty development and research, as well as the academic dean for um, for many years at my prior institution. So collectively, all of these things ready me to lead. So Dean, uh, a topic that's on everybody's minds right now is folks are going back to school, including law schools. What is instruction and what is life at the law school going to look like in light of the pandemic? So like most schools, we had hoped to return to in-person instruction by the fall. But given the spike in COVID cases regionally and even locally, we made the decision in late July to return to remote instruction this fall. Now, students will still receive the same high quality legal education for which NIU law is known. Faculty have been preparing for any contingency and even had the opportunity to take additional training in best practices and online instruction this summer. So they'll use all the platforms that I'm sure you're familiar with. It all depends on their teaching objectives, whether it's Zoom or Blackboard or Teams. Classes will be, some will be synchronous, some will be asynchronous, uh, where students have time to read the material and to go at their own pace. But both student and professor will be fully engaged and active in this online environment. So that's the instruction side. You know, it's, it's not like it was in the spring where we had to quickly switch gears. You know, we were caught off guard, had to get online very fast. We've had more time to prepare now and to be ready and prepare and provide our students with the best in terms of legal education. Our building is open as well. So we're hoping that students can use the space, you know, a quiet space to study. Um, it's also to have reliable internet access. Staff are around reduced hours for in-person meetings. Mostly will be remote. So the logistics will be different. They are different, 
but the quality of the education will be the same. And don't tell anyone, I think the statute of limitations has expired, but I carved my name in one of the library uh, shelves in like 1993. So please don't <laughs> interrupt me for that. Um, we're obviously in a really, really interesting, unique time in, in this country's history, especially in Chicago and in Northern Illinois, where, you know, the Cal, where you are, um, you know, we have uh, an unprecedented time, almost unprecedented time of, um, you know, the fight for social justice and equity. You mentioned that earlier. Uh, we're obviously dealing with the pandemic and COVID disproportionately affecting people of color and minority uh, groups. We're also dealing with, obviously, uh, a rise in, in crime, especially here in Chicago. It's got nationwide attention. Mm-hmm. You are one of the few female African-American law school deans in the country. What role do you think law schools and law students have in this, again, very unique time we're dealing with in, in this country's history? You know, thank you so much for that question. You know, my last count, we now have 23 African-American women deans across the country, which is inspiring others to answer the call to serve. Um, and diverse representation and leadership is needed so much now. And you asked about NIU Law and students' role today. So to me, our collective role is to serve as a beacon for change, to lead by example and bring awareness to racial and social injustices that are happening in our country. And I'm happy to say that we're doing just that. So one of my top priorities for NIU Law is to ensure that diversity, equity, and inclusion are integrated in everything that we do, including our curriculum, our course offerings, and the very life of the law school. Students have had an opportunity to take civil rights, race and the law, related courses. We're also scheduling workshops that infuse cultural competency and implicit bias and understanding of implicit bias throughout the law school. So as educators, we must make sure we are equipping our students to go out there and serve on behalf of those who cannot fight or speak for themselves. They should leave NIU law knowing they have to better the world around them, to be social engineers and public servants, even if they're working at a private law firm. And to add to the awareness, we recently announced a new lecture series, Race in the Law Conversations. You mentioned we're in the midst of a movement right now that has sparked much needed conversations about racial inequality, police brutality, social justice, just to name a few. We hope to add to these conversations in a meaningful way through these new series The first one will be next week on Wednesday, and it's covering police reform. And I want you to know that students are a part of this conversation and the planning for the series. So one last thing, though, I'd like to add, though, as a nation, I feel that we are in desperate need for hope for a better tomorrow. And the groundswell of global support for Black Lives Matter and the racial and social equity that, that has really given me hope. And when I look at the students that have, our new students that are joining NIU Law, they too serve as hope for a more just and equitable tomorrow. I'm like, I'm inspired by each one of them 
their stories, their life's goals. You know, we're here as educators to teach them the law, but I find out that I learned so much from each one of them every day. So Dean, our last question here on Legal Face Off, you just mentioned that you've got a lot of inspirational students who are coming into the school, who are at the school. The school is known for a very strong public interest law program, um, very distinguished alumni, including my co-host, um, as well as just presenting a great value to the students in terms of the education and the connections that they make. How do you hope to build build on that really solid foundation and take the school into tomorrow? So I definitely plan to build on the strengths of the law school and to expand our footprint and offering into areas that further our mission. So you mentioned that NIU Law is well known for its strong public interest program. We have a very successful skills and clinical program, areas of health law, civil law, criminal defense. This summer and this fall, the clinicians have joined, for, have joined forces and they're focused their advocacy efforts on a COVID-19 clinic. So they're helping people who have been impacted in some way during these very stressful times by the pandemic. Now that work will of course continue. And to build on our upward trajectory in public service, I'm expanding offerings and outreach. Let me give you an example. So in the National Jurist, um, the law school placed at a top law school for producing public defenders. I want to build on this criminal defense work at the school and add instruction and technology so that not only our students learn how to best defend their clients, but that NIU law becomes a national resource for practicing defense attorneys to learn new technology whether the technology that's used by the court or as evidence in trials. I also wanna expand by including business law, innovation, immigration law in our course offerings, just to name a few. And lastly, I plan to partner with community leaders to learn how we can better serve them. So the question is, are there any areas where there's a strong need that NIU law can fulfill? And the answer to that question, I believe, will lead to some amazing partnerships and new outreach. That is Dean Cassandra Hill, Northern Illinois College of Law. Dean, thank you so much for your time. Good luck, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Go Gem, go Huskies. Go Huskies. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Dina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. 
To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It's time for the legal grab bag here on Legal Face Up. Thanks to everybody, per usual, for helping us behind the scenes. And joining us on this week's episode is Tiffany Hughes, who's the founding partner of the law office of Tiffany M. Hughes. Hello, Tiffany. Welcome. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. And from WGN Radio Sports, he's, he does pretty much everything for the sports department. He is Joe Brand. Joe B., what's going on? Not much. This is the most law experience I've had since watching Allie McBeal with my mom back in the uh, 90s, so I'm excited. I heard it was actually, Rich, I heard Joe was watching reruns of Law & Order to get prepared. Oh, um. I was. It's funny that you mentioned that because I was watching Ted with my son the other day. And first of all, he's never laughed more at any movie in history than Ted. But in Ted 2, there's a great scene where they're getting high and they're watching Law and Order. And, you know, Ted is doing the whole he's narrating the whole song. And he talks about them hogging up the whole hallway in the opening. That always bugged me. Like there are other lawyers who need that friggin hallway. Like just move aside a little, you know. What about LA Law? No one's mentioned LA Law in this in this whole conversation. No one's sixty, Tina. Okay, Rich. If I remember correctly, you're a few months older than I am. (laughs) And then personally, I just have two words for everybody: Denny Crane. Yes, another classic. Boston Legal. Okay, we've got seven topics per usual. We'll start with the uh, Jesse Smollett report, which uh, the Chicago Tribune has actually just written about. Well, it's interesting that the timing of the Sam that it came out just before the election. I don't think there is any um, surprise there about when it, it came out. Some would say that was purposely done. But yeah, so Dan Webb, who's a former federal prosecutor here in Chicago, one of the really the big uh, attorneys in our city, was appointed to uh, look at the circumstances surrounding the um, exoneration of Smollett, really. You know, Kim Fox, who's the state's attorney of Cook County, dropped charges against Jesse Smollett. Uh, very suspicious. Didn't give a lot of reason why. Um, of course, it, it came out that there was some connection between them. And uh, that's why Dan Webb was appointed. And he looked into it. And as you mentioned this week, Sam, he released a report in which he said that there was no criminal wrongdoing by Kim Fox or her office. But the words he used was uh, abuses of discretion to the point, Tina, where he is referring this issue to the Illinois ARDC, which is the governing body um, that you have to uh, get approval for your license to to practice law. And guess what? You can't lie. You can't do some of the things that Dan Webb accused her of doing. Um, So while she, Kim Fox, has now said that this report exonerates her, because- We've heard that word before. (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, Because there was no criminal wrongdoing. To me, this is a pretty, damning and not surprising indictment of Kim Fox's mishandling of this whole mess. What do you think? Well, I think it's a very interesting turn of events. Can't say I'm terribly surprised. I think it's going to be interesting to see when this report gets released. It needs, we need to have a court order in place in order to do that. Whenever you hear that the ARDC is getting involved, it's going to be interesting and obviously it's going to turn a lot on what is in this report. Um, It's going to be interesting to see if people get suspended or end up potentially losing their licenses over this. So, um, but it all really depends on Webb's full report, which I'm sure once it gets released is going to be an interesting read. Joe, uh, the report says that Kim Fox and her office breached their obligations of honesty and transparency. They said she outright lied. For example, when 
she told prosecutors that uh, $10,000 or t told press that $10,000 was the biggest penalty Smollett could have paid by law and had no criminal background. Neither one of those things were true. Justice Mullet actually did have, albeit a very minor uh, infraction in the past, he did. So, you know, when you look at all of these things as a whole, can Kim Fox possibly stay on as state's attorney? Many people have called, of course, for resignation. She'll be facing uh, a Republican opponent here in the election in November. Everyone knows generally Republicans in Cook County, especially at the state's attorney level, have almost no shot. But do you think that Kim Fox can credibly go forward in her job? Well, I mean, you just brought up one of the questionable things that Kim Fox did or allegedly did. Something else, she when she claimed to stop contacting Smollett, when she realized he was a suspect rather than a victim, apparently Dan Webb's report says she was talking to Smollett's sister. I just think one of the most strangest things, too, is how she never required Smollett to admit guilt or pay a fine. You know, it's, it was just washed away. Yeah, Tiffany, uh, again, the report says that the recusal that Kim Fox engaged in where she stepped away from the prosecution was legally defective in a major way. I mean, to me, that alone would make this whole thing suspicious and probably warrants, in my opinion, Kim Fox stepping down. What are your thoughts on this whole whole mess? Right. Well, I mean, she recused herself because she was talking to his sister um, and she said that she's no longer having any correspondence. She then transferred and had her first um, the next person in line, the first uh, state's attorney, then take over the case. And she said that she was not involved at all in any kind of uh, you know plea deal or anything in regards to the charges being dropped. So, you know. I think it's, there's obviously a big problem. I mean, how much damage was done between the time of when he was charged with the 16 counts to when she then recused herself and when she did have the power to do things. So I think we have a big problem. I mean, there's that gap in time. Yes, okay, she recused herself. But what happened in that point of time? What were the communications that were, that were made to his sister? I know where there was text messages, I believe, maybe phone calls. But what occurred? Why was she having contact with his sister, period? Fair point. Uh, topic number two, we have some celebrities on Divorce Watch, namely Tracy Morgan, Ewan McGregor, and the combo that once was Brangelina. Sam, do you have a Tracy Morgan impression in your back pocket? I'd love to hear one. Everyone seems to have a Tracy Morgan. No, you first. It's, it's, that one's not in my wheelhouse exactly, but we do try to cover celebrity divorces. And the good news is, uh, friends, that they're always happening. It seems like in Hollywood, uh, these marriages don't last very long. And uh, we'll get to Tiffany on this in a moment. But, uh, Tina, there's there's a lot of them going on. I mean, the ones that jumped out uh, to me are, again, Tracy Morgan. The interesting thing there was he's trying to force his soon-to-be ex-wife to go back, revert to her maiden name. So we'll get Tiffany's opinion on whether you can do that. And then also Brad Pitt. This, I can't believe this is still going on, right? Who even thought that Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie were still uh, engaging in this? But since, what, 2016, I believe? Been yeah. Divorced. yeah. And then Ewan McGregor, um, you know, star of uh, many of the recent Star Wars films, has also been trying to get his divorce completed since 2017. And by the way, when I read the Ewan McGregor story, shocking the amount of money involved in this case. I mean, obviously, Star Wars pays a ton, but... I think I read 50 cars you were McGregor sitting on. Um, so 
Why does this stuff take so long, Tina? Well, I think it takes a while because folks, you know, are trying to have some type of privacy and private lives and they're mega superstars. And so they take a breath and they're they're garnering a lot of attention from people. And I also think, unfortunately, that sometimes, you know, there's a lot of emotion involved. I think regardless of whether you're famous or you're um, not famous, usually there's a lot of charged emotions. And I'm sure Tiffany can speak to this you know, in, in particular, that is just a tough thing, especially when you've got a lot of money involved and you've got kids involved and you've got property involved. What I find interesting, particularly as relates to Brangelina is, as you said, Rich, that this has been going on now for many years and we're already seeing the recycling of him and Jennifer Aniston. Are they on again? Are they off again? Who knows? Um, but there was a lot of speculation that they may have been getting back together within the past year. And so... We'll see, but um, I think he's with Charlize Theron now, isn't he? Brad Pitt? Yeah. He's been dating somebody the last year. I thought it was Charlize Theron. Maybe I'm wrong. Could be. Tiffany, this is your wheelhouse. You're one of the preeminent uh, Chicago family law attorneys. So let's turn to the Tracy Morgan case for to start. Is it common to revert back to your maiden name? I imagine it is, but what's interesting in this case is there appears to be some discord there because Tracy Morgan is trying to legally, uh, you know, get that done. So maybe his wife doesn't doesn't want for that to happen. Well, I mean, unless he's got, I don't really think that he's built a fortune necessarily off of his name. Sometimes, you know, you have a Walmart. Story. Walmart would disagree, by the way. Well, you know what I mean. He's he's Tracy. I don't know if people would necessarily always assume that Morgan would be, you know, necessarily tied to him. Right. Tracy. I mean, I guess if. Her last name was Tracy Morgan. Then that would be a different story. Morgan is a pretty common name. It's not uncommon to have somebody that then is allowed in a court order to resume to use their maiden name. You don't have to. No court's going to force you to have to change your name back to your maiden name. So I think that that's a little crazy. Um, right, Tiffany. So then the next story in the big picture, you know, these divorces seem to be taking a long time. I guess my question is, how different? are the divorces for regular people like us and the ones that you represent, how different are those from big celebrity, uh, you know, separations or divorces? Understanding, of course, there's a lot more um, money and property involved in those, but generally are those just much more difficult and take a, a longer time because of the degree of celebrity? Well, I mean, look at Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. They have six children. Technically, they're divorced right now. They bifurcated their divorce, but they still have, they have a custody, essentially a trial coming up in two months. So I think we could say it's safe that, you know, ultimately they are still fighting over their kids. So that's common, fighting over children, fighting over assets. Um, McGregor, I mean, look at him. That must have been an asset issue that they didn't agree because now she's going to be getting part of his 2018 earnings. And that's not supposed to happen. So the more assets you have, the more complexity of what we call the marital estate, the longer it can take. And especially if someone drags something out and doesn't want to settle, then you're looking at a trial. It can take a long time to get a trial right now with COVID-19. It's, you know, courts are up and running, but it's not necessarily business as usual. So I'm sure all these things come into play. Joe, if you had the choice to pick one Brad or Angelina movie. If there was, you know, your Desert Island Brad Pitt movie or Angelina. What are you, what are you popping on the old VHS machine there? 
I mean, it's cliche, but I got to go with Mr. and Mrs. Smith just because that's that's why I remember their whole connection and the demise of Brad and Jennifer Aniston. I was like, I wasn't even interested in the movie. I was like, well, this broke up Hollywood and America's favorite sweetheart couple. I got to see what this is all about. Oh, yeah. Sam, I bet you're a seven guy. I like seven. All right. So uh, on the more serious tones. Uh, Jam Master Jay in the murder charge. I feel like he was shot, wasn't it like 2000 or 2002? Yeah, and now we finally have a charge. Wow. Yeah. Justice never sleeps, right? I mean, there's no statute of limitation for murder, thankfully. This is a great example, I think, of prosecutors sticking with a case. Obviously, this one got a lot of attention because, uh, you know, Jam Master Jay is, what, in the pantheon in the Mount Rushmore of, uh, of early hip-hop. Um and he was killed, as you said, outside a recording studio in New York City in 2002. And it turns out, according to the uh, prosecutor, the uh, U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York, that this was a cocaine deal gone bad. And they finally uh, discovered who the alleged shooter was. And they charged him. His real name is Jason Mizell. Um, and... Uh, yeah, Tina, it's good to see, right? I mean, uh, it, it's it's shocking sometimes that cases go unsolved for so long and suddenly something turns up. But we've seen on countless occasions, especially on this show, you know, witnesses sometimes recant or they change their mind or they remember things or new DNA evidence is discovered. So I think this is certainly a, uh, a promising development in this case. Yeah, I mean, we've got another story coming up in the grab bag where we're going to be having more of the same in terms of you know, people who get wrongfully prosecuted versus people who don't end up paying for their crimes for many years. But in this instance, I think there had been some question as to whether or not the um, there had really been zealous pursuit of who the real murderers were. I mean, he um, he was killed in cold blood. I mean, it was execution style from what I remember. And these guys um, were very much, you know, as you said, among, among the, the best of the best. And you know, I just remember these guys when we were growing up were huge. And I'm glad to see that it looks like um, they found who it was. I mean, it seems pretty clear from what I read that it was this guy, that it was um, that he got angry when um, he was told that he was going to end up being, you know, cut out of this drug deal. So, um, you know, there's definitely a motive here. Joe, Tiffany, one of the obviously with prosecuting someone 20 years almost after uh, the alleged crime is the reliability of the evidence. But, you know, nowadays, uh, authorities, police, prosecutors have a lot more tools at their resources, uh, at their disposal, I should say. But, you know, if you were on a jury and you heard evidence from a shooting that happened 18 years ago, would you question somewhat the veracity of that evidence because of how long it's been? Or would you say, hey, it just took a while and, and this evidence is what it is? Joe, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's it's the uh, the value of the evidence because because what is it that's allowing it to just resurface and uh, putting these alleged murderers at, at the case and possibly press charges? It also tells me if you got a cold case, make a Netflix documentary because nothing's going to rile up the public than demanding answers from something that hasn't been solved in twenty years. Absolutely, absolutely. Tiffany, do you have a favorite uh, Run DMC song? Uh, I do not. <laughs> I love them all. They're all. Yeah, there you go. What are your thoughts on this case? I mean, the grand jury had enough, obviously, to move forward. Um, I don't know what new evidence came up, 
I think they're going to have a problem, though. I mean, witnesses almost 20 years ago, are they going to recall what occurred? Uh, there must be some other maybe uh, physical evidence that maybe surfaced. Maybe it was DNA. Um, so I, I think, obviously, if they believe that there's enough for indictment purposes, then it'll be interesting to see what happens at trial. Sam, my Adidas, classic. I was going to say my Adidas. I also like uh, it's tricky, of course. It's best. Yeah, it's uh, pretty good. Christmas time in Hollis was amazing. That was on the uh, the tribute, the uh, very special Christmas album where all artists contributed a Christmas song. And in like '87, I played that thing mm-hmm. for like two years straight. And I remember Christmas. I in play Hollis. it every Christmas. I love it. Christmas in Hollis is just the best Christmas yeah. song. That's the one that starts out. It's like, yeah, that's the one. Okay. That's uh, Kamala Harris, her husband has taken a leave of absence from a big law firm. And this is a firm that I know. I feel like I've said this term or this firm before DLA Piper. May have heard it once or twice on legal face off over the last couple of years. Uh, Doug Emoff is a fairly prominent litigator at uh, the firm that you mentioned, DLA Piper. And, of course, he is married to the now, soon to be any moment now, um, vice presidential nominee on the Democrat ticket, Kamala Harris. And unlike maybe some other situations, he has taken a leave of absence because, hmm, what a shock. He believes in conflict of interest laws. Unlike the current administration, who have no problem having members of the family still engaged in solicitation of foreign governments in violation of U.S. law, uh, this person who will be close to the uh, White House has decided, I think, quite appropriately to take a leave of absence. And you can imagine a big firm like DLA Piper represents many large corporations, many governmental entities, many of whom uh, have direct relationships or would have direct relationships with a Biden-Harris administration. So uh, this individual practices entertainment and intellectual property law. Um, and on his uh, Twitter accounts, he lists himself as a lawyer third, dad and Kamala Harris hubby uh, first. And uh, some interesting notes in addition about Mr. Emoff. He calls uh, Kamala Harris Mamala, which is a Yiddish term. I, I believe he's a Jewish man. Uh, and they met on a blind date. Do you know, uh, Sam, who Kamala Harris dated among these celebrities that she dated before Mr. Emoff? Early 2000 talk show host? No. That would be uh, not Jerry Springer, but Montel Williams. Regis Philbin. Really? Wow, I didn't know Montel that. Montel Williams. Uh, Tina, can we ask you about this story at all, or what, what do you have to say about it? It depends on what you ask me. <laughs> Explain the relevance of, uh, of, of DLA Piper to you. I was at DLA Piper for 25 years. I started my career there at one of the oh, predecessor uh, firms. Okay. And I had, the fine pleasure, I had the fine pleasure of meeting Mr. Emhoff. He's a really nice guy. Um, he actually started not all that long before I left the firm. So and you were never married to a vice presidential candidate, we believe, right? Sussler has never run on a major ticket. I think he ran as a libertarian at one point, like the. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah, no, he. I don't think he ever ran, you know, ran for you know local government either or anything like that. So, um, and, and if you ask me, he'll tell you he never will. So, gotcha, Tiffany. Uh, is this an archaic idea, or in the Trump era, do these conflicts don't really mean anything? No, it's a joke. They absolutely mean something. That's uh, the fact that he's stepping down. I mean, just put yourself in his shoes, right? 
here he is. He's been in, he's been with DLA Piper for how many years? 20, 25 years. And now he's stepping down because he believes in the fact that conflicts of interest do occur. And they do. I mean, what's happening in the Trump administration is not a joke. It's real. There are conflicts and you should avoid them. So he's doing the right thing and he's putting his, essentially his, his whole career on hold so that way he doesn't create any conflicts of interest. Good for him. Joe, perhaps we'll see a uh, Biden hotel spring up in the new Biden administration a few, a few you know, yards or feet from the White House. But right now it looks like this administration, potential administration, may be treating conflicts of interest a little more seriously than, than the Trump family. Well, if there is a hotel, I'd imagine they put Nirvana in all the uh, elevators because Douglas Emhoff is apparently a huge Nirvana fan. He's even named one of his golf teams after it or something like that. I I just feel like these days, anytime a politician is tied to a controversial relative or a friend or a friend of a relative or a relative of a friend, it, it ties you to some bad juju and you know the other the opposing side can use it as ammo so i feel like this is just a good way to get ahead of things and and avoid all the controversy you can except of course in chicago uh chicago as many relatives as you have or want to make up throw them on the job doesn't matter well yeah i mean everybody's related to everyone here so it's kind of a win-win smells like teen spirit just a little bit all right uh next topic we go to bucks county pennsylvania and this is Pretty strange because a judge had some comments about a woman and then he tried to take them back. You know how that goes. Oh, yeah. So this was actually a very unfortunate case. I mean, ultimately, the result in the case is as good as can be expected when you're talking about a protection from abuse and a child custody hearing. So in this case, we have a judge from Pennsylvania who made what has been have been termed very belittling and incredibly inappropriate comments to um, the woman who was seeking protection from her husband. Um, He actually, so this is Judge Rubenstein in the Pennsylvania Superior, well, the Pennsylvania Superior Court actually was deciding this case on appeal and really um, held the judge's feet to um, the fire. Judge Rubenstein um, made some pretty uh, ridiculous remarks to the woman who is seeking the protection from her husband for many years of abuse. Um, He actually said to her, little blonde honey, you're too dumb to leave. She tells me she was putting money in her 401k so she can leave. That's a bunch of crap. Keep on doing that. That 401k money will pay for your funeral. How can you stay with this knucklehead? You have no self-respect. He actually didn't have many nice things to say about the defendant either. Um, He claimed that he was a real tough guy when it comes to beating on women. And then he mentioned some other anatomical inadequacies that he was not going to get into any detail about. Needless to say, the Pennsylvania Superior Court did not take kindly to this verbiage. Um, They said they found it shocking, sexist, and offensive, and actually that that it could keep other women who are also being abused by their husbands from going to court and trying to protect themselves. So um, the end result is that the woman got the relief she was seeking from her ex. Um, But you don't really see many cases like this where judges go out and say these kinds of things to um, plaintiffs. As judges in the 70s, not that that explains anything. Um, But, you know, certainly uh, maybe a callback to an era where this kind of behavior, this kind of speaking was 
uh, accepted, never appropriate. You know, it's shocking no matter what age you're living in to hear a judge speak of anyone that way, especially someone who's a litigant. Um, so, you know, the good news in all of this is in the uh, time we're living in, not only is there much more consciousness of how you should pro- uh, conduct yourself, there's also more of a spotlight, right? I mean, judges have gotten away with this kind of thing forever. And unfortunately, you know, as all of us who have been before judges will attest, uh, some judges are intimidating. And if you haven't, you know, appeared before a judge, uh, you're taught to be very respectful, obviously. And unfortunately, that has allowed many judges to speak this way, especially to women uh, over the course of many years. So the good news is, you know, uh, all this stuff is much harder to hide going forward. But Tiffany, uh, you're an experienced litigator. I'm sure you've dealt with your share of judges, mediators, arbitrators who have been less than respectful in the way they communicate with you. That's changing. But what's your best advice to our female attorney listeners on how to deal with that kind of thing that still goes on? Well, I mean, I haven't heard any judge say something like this before. I've heard judges reprimand, you know, kind of make an example out of the person in the courtroom that this behavior is not acceptable. But little blonde honey, you're too dumb to leave. I mean, we're talking about a, a person who was in an abusive marriage relationship for 17 years. I mean, now recently, women are coming forward about obviously being raped and are feeling more comfortable that they can come to the courts and prosecute people that have done, you know, wrongs to them. And then you've got something like this. I don't know how they do it in Pennsylvania, but again, I've never seen anything like this here. I feel like it's not a legal grab bag without a Cosby or a Kardashian story. And what do we have here at TMZ.com? Apparently see murder. Don't ask me what my favorite see murder song is. See murder is an incarcerated rapper who says that Kim Kardashian, Tina is an angel who gives him hope. Yes. Well, are you a Master P fan, Sam? Mm. I love Master P. Okay, because Master P is C Murder's brother. So we can have a Master P conversation instead. Professional basketball player, Sam. You should know Master P. Anyways. (laughs) So, yes. So, Kim Kardashian, as you said, Sam, very few episodes go by where we don't talk about her or one of her sisters. Um, So, C Murder is in jail. Um, for the 2002 fatal shooting of a fan, um, a 16-year-old fan at a Louisiana nightclub. He was um, convicted back in 2009. He has claimed that he was wrongfully convicted since the beginning. His girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend, Monica, um, who is a singer also, she has been trying to get him out of jail for a number of months now. And she and Kim Kardashian have combined forces in this endeavor. Um, As we know, Kim Kardashian has been going to law school and she has taken up as one of her causes trying to um, eliminate um, just jail um, crowding and um, helping those who are wrongfully convicted. And so she has been tweeting a lot about her efforts in this regard. And she claims that there are a number of eyewitnesses who have recanted testimony and um, that there's some evidence that's been called into question since C murder was convicted. So it's going to be interesting to see if she's successful. She's helped get other folks commuted over the past few months, and um, she has been an angel to a number of people. So um, it'll be interesting to see if she's able to get him out. 
You know, problem number one in this whole thing is uh, as uh, this individual tries to get out of jail for murder is, um, I don't know, his name is C. Murder. <laughs> maybe, maybe take the murder out of your name when you're trying to get out of jail for murder. Joe, uh, thank, God for, thank God for Kim K. Thank God for her efforts, humanitarian uh, efforts to get people like C. Murder out of jail. She did the same thing with Alice Murray Johnson, quite famously, a few months ago. We covered that on our show. But has the wor- is the world a better place because of uh, Kim K? I- I'm still trying to answer that question. Right. I, that's that's why I uh, follow closely to her Instagram to see exactly what she's doing to make the world a better place. But still having some trouble finding that. Uh, I'm with you on the name change. I mean, that would probably help your case a lot better. Maybe see list murder or something like that. But there's a whole lot of holes in this case. I mean, weren't these weren't they first tried in, in 2003? And then those convictions were tossed out when the key witnesses had criminal records that they were withholding that information. It just seems like there's so many holes to this case. Ladies and gentlemen, the juror, my client, C. Murder, is really misunderstood. He's really a law abiding citizen. Tiffany, does this just speak to the power of social media? You're, of course, very prominent on social media, and it shows Kim Kardashian probably has, what, seven, eight million followers, something like that. It shows you how potent that power can be when harnessed, you know, this way. She was selling makeup and other things for a long time, and now she's shifted all of those followers to this, and it really, I think, can pay dividends. Well, I mean, my grandfather always said, um, master... Master of Jack of all trades, master of none. Um, so I mean, that's great. I thought you were going to say your grandfather always said, "Master P is my favorite rapper." Master, yeah. I was and, say, wow, your grandfather's yeah. cutting edge. <laughs> no, Jack of all trades, master of none. So I mean, I don't know. She's working with this Reform Alliance, which I have never heard of. I guess supposedly it's it's uh, it's an organization that was founded by Jay Z. And Meek Mill and Ben Jones, I don't know what that is. Maybe that's a bigger organization than I know of, but I don't know. I mean, hopefully she can do something. There's actually something to be done. I mean, they're saying about there's testimony from the jurors, um, something about the jurors were pressured into uh, one thing or another. And the testimony that was given was, was not actually the correct testimony. And so I don't know. It'll be interesting. Rich, don't sell Kim K short. You said seven or eight million. She has 185 million followers on Instagram. That's going to make me do this that I was doing earlier. Which is like more than half the American population. Anyways, I digress. Final topic here. Let's bring it home. A video game developer has claimed that Star Trek ripped him off. So, yes, um, you know, Star Trek, we all love it, every incarnation of it. So this video game developer said that back in 2014, he had gone relatively public about the fact that his video game concept incorporated tardigrades, which are or microscopic organisms that are able to live in space because they are so hardy. And apparently one of the latest, if not the latest, Star Trek spinoff series also incorporated references to these microscopic organisms. And it was really on that basis that this video game developer sued CBS and Netflix, who own the rights to the Star Trek series. Um, In a very interesting and fun opinion, 
um, the Second Circuit, after this was actually appealed, it was lost by the video game developer and he appealed it to the Second Circuit. Um, they started off the um, opinion with some iconic language about the, about the ruling going where no court has gone before um, and proceeded to dismiss this case on the basis that tardigrades are facts, they are not expressions, and it's expressions that are covered by copyright law. So sounds like the right result to me um, as the IP lawyer here. Um, I think that these guys keep getting attacked. It, we've just seen so many cases involving Star Trek over the years. I mean, it is a 50-year-old program at this point. So we're, we're, pretty, case nonetheless. we're pretty close to being out of time. <laughs> yeah. I, want to, I want to take this opportunity to remind you, Tina, that William Shatner is uh, a fellow alum of McGill University, where I went to school. And I dated uh, Tina, uh, not Tina, I dated William Shatner's uh, niece back in the day. How long did that last? As long as one episode of uh, Star Trek. <laughs> uh, Joe, uh, Tiffany, any final words on uh, on Star Trek? You just know that this is going to be a trivia question worth a thousand points for the Star Trek diehards out there at some Thursday night trivia bar or something like that. I don't know. I, 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 it's not like he created a new character, a microscopic organism. I mean, he didn't reinvent the wheel. I, I, I don't think he can claim credit for that. Yeah. I, the final frontier. <laughs> These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Anyone know how the rest of that goes, Sam? Five-year mission? Anyway, Tina, you were gonna, I mean, Tiffany, you were gonna end off by saying something. No, I was just No, I, I agree with Joe. I mean, there's nothing here. They're facts, Tina said, facts and ideas are not protected. That's absolutely true. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes people just take a chance to see if they can get some money. I like that. And boldly, boldly end this podcast where no podcast has gone before. I was going to say, I like that tagline. Legal face-off. There's nothing here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us, Tiffany and Joe. And we'll talk to you next time. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...